Welcome to episode 65 of ACA Media, brought to you by the Society for, of, and all about cinema and media studies. I like that. Just go for the more That's, fully yeah. uh, comprehensive and inclusive uh, preposition. Exactly. And to make sure I'm covered, no matter what it really is. Yeah, uh, good. I am Christine Becker. I am Michael Kackman. And we have uh, another episode brought to you by the hard work of other people, which I feel like we're riding this wave pretty good oh, now, yeah. Michael. Oh, yeah. I'm a good surfer, so. <laughs> yeah. And we have this piece, and we've, we've teased this a number of times, and so we have this piece on improv comedy from Diana de Pasquale. And this is um, a set of conversations. She had a series of three conversations with um, four different people about improv comedy and how it specifically intersects with elements of social justice, equality, and trauma. So really coming from an interesting and, and probably unexpected place um, for a segment about improv comedy. Yeah, dark, hard, uh, but funny and good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Diana is a new member of our producing team, so we're really, really glad to, to have this piece. And uh, to give you a little bit more information about her, she is a teaching artist in Toledo, Ohio, co-founder of Glass City Improv, and a Moth Story Slam winner. She has improvised in the Chicago Improv Festival and the Del Close Marathon, and she has facilitated workshops and applied improvisation for organizations across Northwest Ohio. She has undergrad and grad degrees in American Studies, has been published in Studies in American Humor, and was a script consultant and on-screen commentator on CNN's original docu-series, History of Sitcom. So she will introduce her participants, so we'll leave that work to her. Once again, passing the buck on to other people to do a little work for us. That's right. Uh, Diana's the right person to host this conversation, so take it away. Hello, this is Diana DePasquale, and for this episode of the ACA Media Podcast... We are talking to people who write about comedy, think about comedy, perform comedy, and research comedy. And I am also one of those people. I conducted a series of interviews with authors and performers and activists about where comedy fits into the space of social justice and what it means and why it's significant to use comedy as an entry point into making our world more fair and equitable. And I'm really happy with the way the interviews turned out. I'm really um, excited that I got the opportunity to speak with all of these folks. Uh, And so in no particular order, I conducted interviews with Sherry Hazlitt and Rachel Mason from the Social Justice Improv Project. Uh, You can reach them at socialjusticeimprovproject at gmail.com. Their shows are uh, usually hosted at the Magnet Theater in New York City. So follow them on social media and you can uh, be informed of when their next shows are happening. I also talked to the author Amy Seaham, who wrote the book Whose Improv Is It Anyway? almost 20 years ago. And our conversation is a lot about comedy, improvisation, the rule of yes and, and whether or not that's actually a helpful rule, especially when you are an improviser from a marginalized group. Should you always be saying yes to every initiation made by your scene partner? And then finally, my, uh, my interview with Dina Nair Mendowitz uh, was so much fun. She has a show called Mental Illness and Friends, which she uh, has several times throughout the year. She's based in Cleveland, Ohio, and she's a teaching artist 
and she hosts her shows at the Imposters Theater in Cleveland. So I hope you enjoy these interviews with these really talented and uh, great people, and uh, thank you so much. And here is my interview with Amy Seaham, author of Whose Improv Is It Anyway? I hope you enjoy our conversation. Part of what I'm trying to do with this book is is find a middle ground or find a, I think, find the way it should be taught in the first place that doesn't enable the manipulators. And so doesn't, how, so how yeah. do you teach it that way? Well, first of all, I think, yes, and is a serious problem. Um, I don't think it's taught with enough nuance and uh, people uh, who are sophisticated improvisers will say, well, that just means yes and the scene. That doesn't mean that the character can't say no to the other character. Well, I don't think everyone understands it that way. And I certainly don't think, you know, young women in high school improv troops understand it that way and, right. and how to make those kinds of sophisticated differences. And I just heard from a mature woman uh, my, my age who was participating in an improv workshop just this year who quit because she felt that the troupe was uh, crass and, and, and sexually explicit in ways that made her very uncomfortable. And I'm going to try to talk to her further. But so where do we need censorship or where do we need a better understanding of how to collaborate in, in genuinely equal ways, because yes, and it really defers to the first person who speaks. Right. And we're very used to being supportive. Yes, you're so funny, honey. You know, I mean, so, uh, and there's so much sacredness about, yes. There was a ad, I think it was, maybe it was Bud Light commercial that said, uh, Bud Light, the beer for taking no out of your vocabulary for the weekend. Are you familiar with that? Well, there's that one. There's also, I mean, there's a few other ads about um, usually beer or booze ads that talk about like the lessening of inhibitions and not saying yep. no, getting people to get on board easier, kind of yep. you know, how liquor, you know, greases the sort right. of um, people's ability to say yes. And so there are feminists interactions with Bakhtin's, you know, carnivalesque, right? Wow. Who say it's not the same for men and, and for women. If we're right. saying that the carnivalesque is free and upsets the hierarchies and so forth and go out there and eat and shit and fuck and, you know, uh, during carnival, but you're not the one made pregnant, right? You're not uh, the one. The risks right? are different. There's a different set of risks. Very, very different. Yet it's such an attractive concept. And the right? carnivalesque also relies so much on like vulgarity and I don't want, maybe domination isn't the right word, but like shock, uh, vulgarity uh, that frequently can overtake an improv scene. Uh, and then that becomes the, um, the dominant sort of tone or vibe. And yeah, if you are an inexperienced improviser and also someone who is a woman who has been assigned a role by your scene partner at the top and you don't want to rock the boat and you want to support and you want to agree and move forward, it's going to be a hard place to 
you're not going to probably make bold choices as an improviser in that scene. And, and so you'll rob yourself of that opportunity to uh, do some great stuff. Yep. And there are people around the country that I've talked to who are saying, well, we're, we're going to say yes, because instead of yes. And, or we're going to not use yes. And I mean, there, there are some places that are, or teachers who are, experimenting or uh, trying out alternatives to yes and but it is such a powerful mantra i think my book will offer the alternatives but then but then also say it but if you're going to use it you must teach it yeah in a responsible way yeah. yep and then drill so early in my research you may remember this from the book but uh, susan messing told me about the defenses and escapes that she had developed which was how do you hold your own when you've been put in that position? Here are some techniques. And, and, and I've always said, why should we have to do that? I mean, that's, that sucks. But I think that gender training is so, so inculcated even now that you'd have to, I think we'd have, we'd have to have drills, have, have exercises in which you practice. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, not uh, overwhelmed by the by your partner. Is there anything from the past 21 years since your book has been published that you find particularly like innovative or refreshing or even radical yeah. that people are now doing or that you've seen that you were like, now this is different? Yeah. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, there's several, but the first thing that comes to mind is in Minneapolis. It's John Gebra Tatosi. Have you heard of? Um, he's a, a diversity director now so of a uh, the huge theater. Oh, okay. And he ha- he, he's been involved with the, maybe he's the artistic director of an all-African-American troupe called Blackout. Okay. And I saw them do a long form, which is a lot like what's known as the living room format. And in the living room format, people chat about their day or, you know, in an informal way, talk to one another as themselves. And then that's the inspiration for the long form. Oh, you know, okay. the, the way the way an Armando would take the monologue and have it be. But they did it with difficult issues and talked about those things as themselves and then proceeded to do scenes based on it. And I thought, you know, That is fascinating because in so many of my interviews, people have said, you know, it's really impossible to do anything political or even controversial in a genuinely improvised scene because you don't know what each other are thinking. You don't know if this racist character is intended to be. Well, if you know the other people in your troop very, very well, you know. But I've always been told, you know, genuine improv cannot be political. And I don't I don't think that's right. I mean, Augusto Bois has improvised. Yeah, I, I think the University of Chicago in 19 in the 50s would disagree with you. And well, yeah, lots of people. Right. The committee. Yet, but if you if you're doing the group mind long form, you know, Del Close, we're all, you know, in liminal space together. I was told you if you come in with an agenda. Sure. If you come in with a feminist agenda, that's no, you know, that's wrong to do. Right. And I think, well, 
but that's how I'm protecting myself. Sure, you know? but to bring, to bring back Susan Messing for a second, yeah. I don't think she's the one who said it. Maybe she picked this up from Dell, but you know, improv is supposed to be this sociological study of the human experience, right? And so if you are a feminist, if you are a woman, you bring that perspective to your, it informs your kind of perspective. It informs possibly your character's perspective. So I think, right, that old, the personal is political. Right. Uh, I think it's hard to separate that stuff. And Depending on whether you're supposed to be sinking in with, you know, in sync with your group, which I've heard from improvisers of color also. Oh, I see. That, yeah. You know, like group mind, which in sociology is like a bad thing, right? Yeah. Is this, we're not all is, members of the same group. We're not. We're not and, yeah. And yet, in order to to get that high, to get the goal of this incredible experience where you all know what the next moment is going to be, you want to be in sync with one another. And I had one improviser say to me, I think it's in my earlier book, you know, we all speak white male. So we know how to write. But that doesn't mean we feel like equal participants in group mind. And here is my conversation with Rachel Mason and Sherry Hazlitt from the Social Justice Improv Project. We talk about how to make improvisation more inclusive and welcoming for performers, students, and audience members. Everyone's sense of humor is shaped by the trauma they've experienced. Absolutely. Right? Like, what is the tragedy plus time equals comedy? And we've acknowledged our privilege And we wanted very much to create a platform for people other than us to say how they feel about the world, but still have a meaningful impact on the art they were making. And we tried to get as many diverse artists as we could, whose experiences were absolutely different than our own. However, we were able to, Sherry said, connect on like the human points, like the joy for making art rather than we have to fix the world and this is serious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, And I think to Rachel's point, I think one of the things that we, a couple of things we did to really focus on that, obviously, you know, like the mission, you know, intersectional centering lived experiences which is really for, you know, women, LGBTQIA+, global majority, all all of that kind of stuff. So it wasn't that it was women only or, you know, global majority only or anything like that as much as it was about the stories and experiences and centering those. So the cast is diverse, but that was through the audition process and and pairing the grouping the folks together that could not just, um, I think it's not just about those experiences as much as it's about point of view point and of expression, an expression, comedy, like all of those types of things. So that, you know, they're trained, um, you know, all of them have been through various comedy improv sketch training programs, um, you know, house teams, various theaters and stuff, New York, Chicago, that kind of thing. Um, as much as it's about focusing on the, the joy that comes out of that. And the other thing, I think in particular, looking at I'm sorry. It's I live in New York. <laughs> Somebody's honking at you. You're right here. Um, I think, you know, and this happens, it happens a lot, I think, in any 
type of collaborative process, but I think in improv a lot too, you know, we hear a lot of this, bring yourself, be yourself. Um, you're interesting. You're this, you're that. What happens is when we get in these environments, those things, whether it's gender, religion, um, sexual orientation, all those kinds of things. A lot of times those things actually do become neutralized because you're the only one. And there's that risk of when you're the only one, that your thing that makes you interesting and unique and original, that becomes the unusual thing. We all know it happens in an improv scene when you're playing with folks that see something unusual, right? Or hear something unusual becomes can become the focus of comedy when it should not be, or people don't know what to do with it. So they ignore it. And then you're just kind of left out there hanging. Right. So the, the other thing too, was, you know, through this process was making sure folks weren't the only one, but also that we have everyone really fully take some time, do some writing, identify their own personal stories, formative experiences, things that make them, them and bring that. And a lot of the exercises and work that we did in the workshopping process was to find those connections and intersections. So we can actually bring all of those things together, you know, thematically through character and story. Uh, what you just said reminds me of uh, my conversation last week with Amy Seaham and how we talked a long time about, you know, this idea of yes and, which is kind of props everything else up in improvisation you know, maybe we should examine yes. what we mean when we say yes and, because quite yes. often people who belong to groups that have been historically been marginalized, whether you're a woman or a queer person, uh, huh. both of those like apply to me. When you show up in a scene and you are expected, not just expected, but you are, you know, it, the mantra is that you are uh, required to say yes, sometimes to somebody who's dropping some sexist, racist, anti-Semitic, whatever it is. And you have to be the good sport and support them. I and disagree. That, you do not have to be a good sport. I also disagree that you don't have to do right. that. But for newer players or right. players yes. that like what Sherry described, that you're one person on a team of six or seven and you feel like, well, I guess I just got to do this. It's really quite challenging for them to push back on saying, I hear what you just said. And that was fucked up because that doesn't seem to be supportive in the traditional historical understanding of what yes and means. There are ways to yes. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, like this is a great example of something that I faced constantly as a woman improviser. I would constantly get asked because I was the only woman on stage. I would constantly get asked, honey, is dinner ready yet? And I, like I used to be like, but of course. <laughs> you know, because that's a genre or whatever. Until finally one day I was in a bad mood and I snapped. And I said, I don't know, ask my chief of staff. I'm busy. Get out of the Oval Office. Mm. And that is a yes and. Sure, absolutely. Right. And so, right, exactly. And that takes time and experience to be able to get to that point. And unfortunately, what happens is a lot of people who, especially women, people that are not white men, <laughs> um, come into these environments. Well, I've never had a woman as a teacher. Oh, right? yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> but these people that come into the environments that um, it's like, oh, we're supposed to say yes and everything, anything goes, you're supposed to say yes to everything, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, my God, I don't want to say a lot of those folks just don't stick around long enough. Right. So that's so in theory, yeah, you can subvert. You can. It happened to me two weeks ago on stage. I actually played a character with it who was Jewish with a Jewish point of view because I knew I had a Jewish audience with a rabbi. 
And not one of my teammates knew what to do with it. So they just kind of left it sitting there. You know what I mean? And that's, I'm playing with people that are experienced, right? I knew how to handle that. And I wasn't all like, oh no, what do I do? But like that happens all the time still. So creating this type of environment was important, not just because of, you know, wanting to find new ways to work and collaborate and tell stories that are not just from one perspective, but also to give folks that are trained that, you know, they're already performing. Some of them are professional actors and stuff like that, but a lot of times, especially when you're given an opportunity, right? What if that's it? That's your chance. So are you really going to take a chance and really bring your full self and your point of view and you haven't even had a chance to, to work that out? No, absolutely not. You know, so this environment also in this, this project in particular really gives people an opportunity to experiment with that, their voice, strengthen, strengthening their own point of view and feeling confident articulating that on stage and how to navigate in those types of situations and environments that they don't always get because it feels like it's so high stake. So uh, when I was talking to Dina uh, Nair Mendelowitz before, she mentioned this essay that Roxane Gay wrote about, well, you know, you should have a thicker skin. Like you should be able to take a joke. And no. Roxane Gay is like, no, <laughs> you shouldn't no. have to. Like you develop such a thick skin that ultimately you can't feel anything anymore. Right. And, and maybe we should stop expecting people to like always be the butt of the joke because being the butt of the joke isn't funny and it's, it doesn't feel good. But again, I think there's a lot of that historically like layered into improv about, um, especially in this like group mind and ensemble stuff that uh, you have to sort of take one for the team sometimes. And I would also like to really kind of start pushing back on that more, uh, even though I think I, I feel like I do a little bit already, but I think maybe, you know, we're in a moment when we really, really need to sort of re-examine some of this stuff that we've all been trained or taught or whatever. And some of us have always been, I don't know about that. And uh, maybe kind of push back uh, more aggressively or more confidently. That's a better word. Like, like Rachel was saying though, too, she can elaborate, but just having teachers, I think also teachers, directors, that actually can see those things and can course correct. Because what I see, I see those things happening. And then I see whoever's, you know, directing, teaching, see it, not know what to do and move right on past it and not know how to address the thing in the moment. Cause they're like, I don't have the language. I don't know how to do that. And then for some reason they don't feel responsible for having to, cause they don't have the skills or whatever. It's, it's not about that. It's also people getting experience and knowing how to have those conversations by trying yeah. Right. You have to try to do that. Um, and it's uncomfortable, but also, yeah, changing the environment and how things are done. Rachel, you can. Which is one. radically changing right now as we speak. Yeah. Any learning situation now is about decentering the teacher or decolonizing the classroom. Like these sort of old school practices are unacceptable to the younger generations of yeah. artists. Yeah. And teachers need to work hard to like educate themselves as language is evolving around this stuff. Yeah. I mean, like we've always known that tragedy plus time equals comedy, but by transitive properties, that means a trauma must have occurred for right. us to be laughing about it now. Yeah. So yes. we like that idea of thick skin, we really need to care. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that's been so frustrating too, as not just teaching at the college level, you know, the topics that I usually teach on are all the things that people love to talk about, race, gender, sexuality, uh, all that stuff. But even teaching improv, I didn't realize it would be so challenging and so frustrating at times to point out, like, that was definitely a choice you made. Why did you decide to make that choice as opposed to a more empathetic or kind choice or even curious choice about you're married to another man in a scene. So what? <laughs> What's the big deal? Yeah, Why did you have to make a choice that made it so that way? Yeah. Rachel, well, what's been your experience in teaching classes throughout your career and pointing out those choices people make to students of improv? Well, now, you know, all the rage. So back then, we simply talked about playing to the height of your intelligence. Right. Which doesn't necessarily mean Sofia is the capital of Bulgaria, which it is. It does mean I know what I know and I'm unafraid to share that. And I respect that somebody next to me knows something completely different than I do. And that's what makes our improv so exciting. In modern day classrooms, we are creating classroom contracts at the top right? Like what subject matter, where are our boundaries on touching, hate speech, sexism, racism, homophobia is never acceptable. Like we're literally saying those things now at the top of us making art. And because I was sort of forged in the fire of satire, the people that I was dealing with, like, we want to do scenes about sexism. We just don't want to do sexist Right, right, right. So watching us sort of struggle against that, like it is changing. People are thinking just a little harder about how to more better say the thing so that it is digestible. In this interview, I speak with Dina Nair Mendlowitz. Dina is a teaching artist from Cleveland, Ohio, and regularly hosts her show, Mental Illness and Friends, at the Imposters Theater. A quick note about this interview. Some of the audio in this recording is unclear. At one point, Dina mentions Susan Messing, the improviser from Chicago, but her name gets a little garbled. Once again, Dina mentions Susan Messing. And lastly, There is discussion of suicidal feelings and suicidal ideation in this interview. If you need support right now, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You can also reach the crisis line by texting START to 741-741. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dina Nair-Mendlowitz. 2016 in May. Um, I was not doing well. I was having a really hard time. I live with chronic suicidal ideation, which basically means my go-to point for everything is suicide. Like that, that's where if I'm feeling anxious in a moment, if I'm uh, processing trauma in a moment, whatever the sort of thing is, it all dumps into this one bucket of suicide. And I was really struggling. And in my like suburban neighborhood, uh, a gun store had opened up and I was like, oh, problem solved. And I had gone in there and I, um, in less than a half hour, purchased a firearm. I'd never held or touched a gun before in my life. And I had every intention of taking my life that night. And I called Susan Mappings. We made a plan for me to return the gun the next day and to go into the hospital. 
and I did those things. And in the hospital at that time, I wasn't performing as much. There's been Cleveland's comedy scene as kind of uh, improv scene had peaks and valleys of activity. And I, I wasn't performing as much at that time. And I was like trying to think of, um, I guess one day while I was in there about how I could take all the stuff that was going on in my head and do something with it. I had already done a play called Funnel Cakes Not Included, which kind of talked about living with mental illness. It was like a one woman show that played at a theater in Cleveland. And it was about living, you know, with depression and suicidal ideation, but was a little cleaned up too. And um, I, I wanted to figure out something else. And when I wound up coming to, I had done a show in a coffee shop where I invited some people I knew who lived with mental illness to just stand up and tell true stories from their life, like a moth style show for one night. And then I said, this feels good. And I thought, what if I, I've always wanted to host a, a talk show, uh, like since growing up because of Rosie O'Donnell. Um, and so uh, I was like, I'll, I'll host a fake late night talk show and uh, it'll be like a low budget show and I'll just have these guests. And my, my goal was to have it in a spot. Sometimes you do shows, you know, on a bar s- stage and people don't know the show's happening or not. And Ugh. it feels crappy for the performers and crappy for the people who just came to sit with a friend at a bar. And I, I wanted a place that was really protective of my guests. Um, and so there was a bar that had a basement space, which is where we started using it. And the show's actually, it's turning five this May. We're having a fifth anniversary show on May 28th. But uh, it's a weird show to book because I'll see people who are talented and I'll be like, you know, I'll go be somewhere and see a musician. I'll be, do you have any depression or anxiety? Like, would you like <laughs> to do the show? Like you just have to, it's a weird kind of one, but there's some favorite guests we've had on um, again and again. And we're always finding new people, sometimes people who come up to us after a show. Sometimes I'll see a stand up set and hear someone talk a little bit about something going on. Sometimes I'm like, I saw a friend recently having not like a breakdown, but was not mentally doing well and was sharing it on social media, which I've been known to do many a time. And I was like, hey, would you like to do my show? And he delivered this phenomenal set. And the people who come to the show is a mix. Sometimes it's people like I just did a show with John Carroll and somebody who came with somebody I was in a psych ward with. And uh, we had friended each other on social media afterwards and she had seen the show. People come, sometimes they have a mental illness and they come with a spouse because they want their spouse to hear other stories and see that it's not just what's going on with them. People come who want to support us. And I'm like, I'm always surprised that people, uh, now I do the shows. I used to do them once a month and it was a pretty healthy. So I was in this hospital in May in 2016 and I launched mental illness in May in 2017. And I was having a pretty healthy streak then. And I did the show once a month. I wasn't always feeling well, but I was well enough to do it. And then I wasn't well enough to do it monthly. And I was like, why are you damaging your mental health to do a mental health show? So I just do it when I want to do it. So I was like, it's five years. I want to do one in May. I called Michael Bush, who runs Imposters Theater, and said, can you give me a Friday or Saturday? And he did. And I love that space. That's where you saw it as a 20-seat theater. And I've always loved packing small spaces than trying to fill big spaces. And I love that the people come want to be there. You know, it's like, that's what's great. People sometimes, I don't ever beg people to come to comedy shows because I don't want anyone there who isn't like, yeah, this is what I'm jazzed to do tonight. 
<laughs> have the performers that you've asked so the night I was there there was a, a the musician that you asked to perform mm-hmm. if I'm remembering uh correctly he had recently uh taken mushrooms or acid or mescaline I can't remember Popped, actually it was oh, just, that's it was just right. pot. and he had this sort of bad experience and he was talking about how this had really that he was still feeling unwell and that this was the first time that he had, it was that he had performed or that he had talked about this in public. He seemed, he gave a great performance and he was a, a quite accomplished musician, but it was, it seemed to be such a supportive crowd for someone who was still so shaky and shaken about this experience he'd had. And part of what I loved about his performance was that everyone was like really there for him. I mean, I was so completely mesmerized by his performance, but also just his humanity and talking about like, I'm terrified right now. I was terrified up in the woods of Michigan (laughs) when I had this drug experience that I didn't, that I didn't anticipate. What are some of the other things that you've heard from performers about this? Cause this is a different kind of show. So Mm -hmm. have they commented about that at all? About that show? About just being in your show, mental illness and friends, like oh. that it's different or that they have an experience that they haven't had before. I think people do feel that the room is safe, so they are willing to share. When we first started the show, the first episode, which like I would not listen to it, but was like podcasted. And then I was like, I don't want to do that at all. I want it to be ephemeral in the moment and this sort of thing. So I think because people, if it's going to be out there, have to say different things than they can say if it's not. So I think, you know, for them having that space where they can just say anything and know, and I think know the audience is supportive. And I think a show in that particular room during mass hysteria, mini fest was going to be the most supportive audience. Here's people who are like coming to attend a women run comedy weekend that like our whole goal was to make it a place where people can feel supportive. And I, I think it's interesting. So when I when I did my show at John Carroll, I had liked how the guest had worked out so well for that show. I asked them to do it again. And he's actually had processed it more and was doing it better. And it was interesting this time because he was like in a room of college kids and he was like, I had this bad trip. And they're all like, it's OK, smoke more pot, you know, like it was a very different crowd. Um, but, you know, I think if you can feel protected with it once, I didn't know if he would say yes to doing it a second time or, or not. But I mean, I think I always say like people like I used to do the show on Tuesday nights and like people who are coming to a mental health comedy talk show on a Tuesday night are going to be good people. You know, it's interesting. I did a, a set, a stand up set at a show that was in a. Um, it was in an exclusive room for comedy. So it was in that sort of space. And it was the, like, I knew probably a third of the people and I talked about a lot of deep and different things and it like killed it. And like a couple nights later, a friend was like, we do a set at a bar. And I'm like, yeah, I'll just do the same set. And I was like, oh no, should not have done this set. It was <laughs> like, it was crickets the entire time. But I was glad I had the other set first because I was like, oh, I know it works. Just didn't in certain places. But I mean, I think that's the big thing too with comedy and mental health and people talking about all sorts of stuff. You know, I think it's why storytelling has taken off at such a thing because those rooms are so supportive. And, you know, a Susan Messing quote is like, if you want to be supported, do improv. If you want to be judged, do stand up comedy. Um, and I think creating a space where people can do the kind of comedy they want is actually one of the great things about 
Cleveland not having tons of improv spaces. I didn't have to go to a theater and say, let me do my show here. I said, let me find the space. I want to do the show. Okay. You mentioned, you know, that um, storytelling lends itself well to this type of, you know, revealing type of story. Um, One of the things that I've noticed and I'm very encouraged by in the past few years is the amount of really high profile um, stand-up specials that have explicitly dealt with this. So Gary Goldman's The Great Depression, Neil Brennan's Three Mics, Jenny Slate's Stage Fright, Hannah Gadsby, and then also Chris Gethard's Career Suicide, where he mm-hmm. describes his uh, suicide attempt and his um, history of mental illness from when he's like a, a teenager. And I was wondering if if you've seen any of those, if you have any kind of reaction to what those performers are doing in their work. So it's weird. A part of me veers away from watching too much stuff and the fact I'm afraid I'm going to copy something in some way or something I've already had is now going to be. So I just actually heard there's a great new special by Taylor Tomlinson, which I have not watched yet either that really handles mental health stuff like I, I like in the way that like I've watched Hannah Gatsby stuff and she touches on it I'm a huge fan of Maria Bamford who's been doing it a longer than these other people who was kind of taking the break but I, I think Chris Gethard is amazing the stuff of his and, and bits of his that I've seen Jenny Slate like a lot of these people I just admire a lot as comedians um, and I think sometimes for me too I think it would have been really helpful stuff for me 10 years ago because 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot. I had Carrie Fisher and I had Maria Bamford and that felt like that was what you had. And so now that so many are is encouraging. And um, even if it's just, you know, one joke about it. Uh, And someone sent me a link to an interview with Chris Rock from about three, four years ago, where he was describing his trauma as a kid of being kind of targeted at school for a number of reasons because of his size, because of his race. And also these, this like really kind of targeted violence that he described as not quite rape, but rapey or rapish. And people seem to be really getting more okay with talking about their own trauma. Uh, And that's showing up in lots of different work, uh, which I think is encouraging. But again, it also for some people maybe tread lightly because I guess it encourages people to know that like, I'm not alone. I can relate to this experience, but also there might be ways that people should tread lightly because it might reactivate their own traumatic experiences from when they were younger or whenever it happened. What do you think is the role of comedy, either whether it's improvisation or stand up or just performance in general, being on a stage saying funny shit, what do you think is the both responsibility and obligation of the performer to the audience and vice versa? A lot of that I had to think about with several shows. It's interesting when I when I first wrote Funnel Cakes Not Included, I, I'd written a bunch of blogs, basically, like kind of humor while dealing with mental illness blogs. And this very wonderful writer, actor, director, Anne McAvoy helped me make it into this one woman show. And Anne, actually, I was going to play myself in the show, but my memory had been so destroyed from electroconvulsive therapy, shock therapy, that I couldn't. So Anne played me in the show. And in the script, it was really important. I had had a, a line in there because I, I knew a variety of people would be coming to the show, including people who had lost a loved one to suicide. And I wanted it in there that nobody can save another person, that that people help me through. Like even Susan Messing, Susan Messing. Susan Messing's come the closest 
to saving my life. But she will tell you, it was all you, Dina. Like, you know, I was here. The final choice is mine or not mine. And you surround yourself with people who help you stay safe. And so I had that line in there. And then I, I went to perform the show at Miami of Ohio. And they wanted like American Suicide Prevention or somebody to vet the script. And they said, you can't have this line in there about nobody can save another person because people are going to think they can't help people. And my voice of like defending my work and that sort of stuff is much stronger now than it was then. And if I remember correctly, I think we wound up taking out the piece and replacing it with another piece, or we just wound up leaving it that way. And there was another piece they didn't want at all that we had to replace. Uh, And it's the only place, like when I just went and performed to John Carroll, they said, you can say anything you want on our stage. And this was also probably eight years ago or whatever, when I performed. So I think, would it be the same if I did it at Miami today? Or would, would they not make that choice? You know, would we not be that scared for our students? But I, you know, I think to me, I always feel my goal is to say, like, I understand at least part of what you're feeling because I feel this way and this is what's going on and to try not to say things. I don't think you have to say things to be provocative and shocking. And it's, it's hard around the topic of suicide because people are so protective around it. But I think my story is honest and true. So if I stay to that and stay to what that feels like, that's the best I can do is an audience, you know, like I say, I just hope the people who come through the door are people who want to hear and want to listen and want to support. I don't remember a mental illness and friend show. I'm not, you know, having a great reception. How, what are your plans for the future? Like, are you going to have a, uh, an annual show, a twice a year show, three times a year, or is it just pretty much like when I feel like doing it? Yeah, it's kind of that. Like for a while I said it was really good to have the show because it was another thing, you know, there's this principle in mental health of opposite action, which, you know, basically that you want to stay in bed and you you don't want to go anywhere and say, I'm just going to get up and shower and see where that goes. For me, it's been like, you know, I'll just plan a comedy show. I'm in my therapist's office and I'm saying, you know, I don't know how much more I can handle living. And then six hours later, I'll be like, welcome to Mental Illness and Friends, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and Carrie Fisher talked about this, of going on stage, doing her show. She was doing Wishful Drinking, her one-woman show about mental health in her life. And she said, you know, there's this thing, if like you're able to trick the audience, you're okay. Part of you is able to trick yourself, you're okay. Not even that you're okay, that you're great. And so... I get that. It usually only lasts me about a half hour because my brain's a dick and my brain will be like, oh, you want to be okay right now. I'm going to double down on you feeling awful. And so that's what I work with. So I don't know. I see it happening like around four to six times a year. And and the thing is, I can book it a month out. And then when it happens, not be doing great. But like, hopefully, if I'm not in the hospital, I do the show. That's kind of how I do it. I really enjoyed the show. I, I hope to see it again. I think it's um, I think it's not just um, like helpful, but I, I just think it's really funny uh, that people, the people that you chose the night I saw it anyway, were a delightful mix of insecurity and also making fun of uh, stuff that doesn't make sense in the world. Perhaps that, you know, some of us maybe are reacting appropriately to like the things that are happening in the world. It's, you know, anyway. Such a fascinating set of conversations. I'm really happy that Diana brought that to us. 
I appreciate the way that they're willing to mine that difficult territory where trauma and mental illness and comedy all actually do <laughs> kind of live together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess ideally that's what the Society for Of and All About Cinema and Media Studies should do when we're talking about entertainment or pop culture, something that is supposed to be pleasing and pleasurable. We also want to find what is difficult and complex and sometimes unpleasurable yeah. about that. And moving. Yeah. So thank you for um, that. Yeah, yeah, we really appreciate that, Diane, and all the participants. Really great uh, window on that topic for us. Um you know, usually we, we finish this podcast by talking about things that we've been watching, and I've been so crazy busy, I haven't watched anything. And in fact, I wanted to, my, my mention was going to be something I didn't get a chance to see, and this is, um, we have a film society class that I run, and I wasn't able to attend this weekend. So I had our cinema manager, um, who runs our campus, you know, public cinema, uh, Ricky Herbst, he ran it for me, and Ricky's really clever and creative and so he came up with an idea to do a music video lineup nice. and so yeah each he had like kind of different sections like grouping three videos in each section whether they were united by title or theme or something like that and so um just to give you a glimpse of the or a taste of some of the things he played for the students so uh, madonna's express yourself video outcasts hey ya queens i want to break free my personal favorite chibo motto's sugar water Nice. Google it if you haven't seen it. It's awesome. Uh, the Weather Girls, It's Rain and Men, uh, Eurythmic Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Um, and so I just thought I'd bring that up because I know you're also a, a kind of a music video aficionado and particularly in regard to your 80s uh, um, pop culture class. So I thought that would be sort of a fun to, to reflect on. Oh, yeah, that videos. is fun. Um, although some of those are better in your memory than they are uh, when experienced mm. anew. <laughs> Yeah, that could There's be some pretty awful stuff in there, but um, <laughs> well, but still good in its own way. Yeah, well, and so Ricky did a you know by applause vote in each of these categories. Then there was a winner of each category, and then an overall winner uh, based on applause. Oh, and yeah. the winner, and this might yeah, especially that notion of like holding up or not. Um, Guns and Roses November Rain oh, yeah. was what the kids today thought was the best of the entire lineup. That's the kids today. They really like that November <laughs> Rain. They do. That long form story and oh. all of that stuff. Oh. Yeah. That's some pretty wretched stuff. But yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> and that's and that's of course, you know, getting to the point where MTV's almost not even a music video channel anymore. But Right. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out. I'll go ahead and shout out Amanda Ann Klein's book about that transition Huzzah. from music video to reality TV. Um, so good, good read if you, if yeah, you get a chance and to good check it pick out. Yeah, mm, Thank you. That's some like um, major league shortstop skills there. Like, hey, I got <laughs> yeah. an idea. Yeah. Quick pivot to first. Yeah. Uh, which is then the, the heavy lifting I did for this episode is, is all <laughs> There I you offer, go. So. There you go. This is the kind of work, uh, the kind of heavy, heavy lifting hard work we do in October. That's right. As November rain approaches. <laughs> November rain approaches. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm on a roll, but I'm gonna stop too. All right. Thanks for listening to us. Acomedia could not be produced without the support of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, as well as our co-conspirators scattered around this little world. 
And that includes Bill Kirkpatrick up in Winnipeg. Stephanie Brown at Washington College. Frank Mondelli at Stanford. And uh, the Golden Ears of Todd Thompson down at the University of Texas. Yeah, we like to thank so much the people who brought us this episode. So that includes Diana De Pasquale, uh, the participants Amy Seaham, Rachel Mason, Sherry Hazlett, and Dean and I are Mendelowitz. Thank you so much for sharing and, and, and your honesty and, and the kind of deep thoughts you, you brought to this podcast. We very much appreciate it. Stay warm out there. Enjoy the fall. And uh, I don't know. Watch out for those November rains. Yeah. That's it.